0: Hello. Good afternoon. It's not needs to be louder. Good afternoon, everyone. Is that better? Good afternoon. I'm Judy Langhans from the Center for um, Learning and Professional Development, the Continuing Nursing Education Office. I'd like to thank you for joining us for this special session of Nursing Grand Rounds entitled Improving Care Transitions and Reducing Avoidable Readmissions. I'd also like to welcome anyone that's viewing us online today. The objectives for today's program are included in the slides. Please be sure to sign in over here. Um, To record your attendance, you must attend 80% of this program to receive credit. This educational activity carries one contact hour. For those viewing online, please feel free to email me with any questions you may have during the presentation and I will relay them to the speaker. You Also, also to receive credit, you need to email me within one hour after the presentation with your name, degree, and zip code and I will record your attendance. My email is judith.m. Dot Langhans, L A N G H A N S, at Hitchcock.org. Even if you don't need the credit today, we would appreciate it if you would sign in so we can send you the evaluation after the program. You'll receive a link to an online evaluation by the end of the day. The CNE office values your feedback and hopes that you take a few moments to evaluate the program. Your contact hours will be posted to your online transcript within two weeks, and there are instructions on how to access your online transcript over here, or you can contact me. Our speakers today are Darlene Sailor and Dr. Craywith, Darlene is the Associate Chief Nursing Officer here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Darlene has been a leader of care management at Dartmouth-Hitchcock for over 20 years and has actively been involved in our readmission work and design of our care management program. Dr. Craywit is an assistant professor at the Geisel <coughs> School of Medicine. Um, he is the Medical Director of Care Management at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. As medical director of care management, he is active with hospital regionalization efforts and roles across the spectrum of care management, including best practices, readmissions, insurance denials, revenue cycle, compliance, and physician engagement. Neither our speakers nor any members of the planning committee identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or conflict of interest regarding this activity and no one refused to disclose. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome our presenters. Thank you, Judy. Thank you for um, having us come
1: today. Uh, Dr. Krawa and myself and, and Alan Kono actually did um, part of this uh, presentation at a geriatric conference in, in June. And so after that, I said, gee, this would be great to bring back here and, and get it taped for Nursing Grand Rounds. Um, so uh, I will turn it over to Dr. Do You want to say a few words.
2: Thank you very much for having us. I think this is um, a really important topic for nursing because you are uh, one of the final pieces in the discharge um, and the transitions of care to get patients uh, to the appropriate level of care. And that critical link, if in its absentia, is a crucial determinant on hospital readmissions. And so without you, we get nowhere. And, And so this gives a little bit of an overview of some of the CMS regulations and then what we're doing as an institution to um, maximize our efforts as a kind of top tier institution, uh, top 10% in the country of what we're already doing and maintain that status moving forward. Great.
1: I do wanna welcome not just nurses in the audience today, uh, we have some of our colleagues who are nurses from um, home care here, we have our rehab team here and others. Um, So again we're all in this together um, and I think that's one of the pieces um, our readmissions team has been um, meeting uh, like forever and I think I've been chairing that group forever Um, but uh, we really are at a point that we've been working with a lot of disciplines and so we also need to understand what readmission work is happening in other areas in the organization so um, at the end we have that time to just you know hear from you all as well about what's what's happening out there. So our objectives today, um, to really look at some of our best practices that we've used at Dartmouth-Hitchcock over the years, um, to really look at um, some of those populations, what some of our data is around our heart failure, chronic pancreatitis, geriatrics, and our sniff waiver that we've had, and, and our COPD patients, um, and then to talk some about some of the tools that are available to identify some of those at-risk patients. So... Um, Probably in 2010 or so, Medicare um, was working on looking at readmissions and trying to understand sort of what's been going on. And they created a a hospital readmissions reduction act. Um, And so in 2012, they began to look at those measures um, and establish those measures for um, acute MI, heart failure, and pneumonia. Um, And so we've been working very diligently on those patient populations over the last three or four years. Um, They spent a lot of time really focusing on the definitions, what that meant, and I'm going to review some of the definitions, um, and looking at what that national average should be across the country. So they're really looking at their data set and trying to help us all understand where we needed to be. They did use some risk um, adjustment methodologies to help with some of the demographic characteristics. So we're a rural environment here. And so as a rural environment, we really, you know, we get paid differently. And so they took that into consideration. They really did look at some comorbidities, past family medical history, and patient and family um, frailty um, concerns. So in 2014, they actually then realized, oh, initially we had planned readmissions into the data. Well, as you know, we have a lot of planned readmissions. We have patients that are coming back and forth for for chemo, um, and that that really does skew our data. Um, And so they decided to take that out of it. In 2015, they added COPD um, and uh, the total joints um, as another area that they were going to focus on. Um, and from what I can find, um, for 2016, we now have no changes to the current list of what we're being measured against. But in 2017, they are actually looking at adding some some specialty procedures like um, cabbage. Although in the literature, as I was reading it. Um, as we all know, there are so many other cardiac procedures that we're, our volume of, of cabbage surgeries has dropped significantly. So they really may relook at this and come up with another uh, surgical area that they will focus on um, in 2017. We don't get a lot of notice around what they're looking at. So it makes it hard for us to make sure that we're looking at everything as we look at our, our data here. So something, something about the penalties. So part of this Reduction Act was that we were going to get uh, some penalties and how we were paid. So in 2013, we had about 18% um, of our Medicare patients overall uh, across the country that were readmitted within 30 days. And that's looking at everything. Um, and they felt it was about a $17 billion um, excess spending for Medicare. Um, and so then as we started to implement this, so 2013 was really, 2012, 2013 was really our first full year. Um, and then they, it's, we're kind of in the rears with Medicare and how they do the uh, penalties. But in 2014, we had 66% of our hospitals in the country, or 2,225, that actually received those penalties. Um, and the national penalty, penalty was about 50, whoops, I lost mine. There it goes. Sorry, <laughs> there it goes. Gonna go back. Totally lost it. Um, the total penalty was about fifty-three million. Um, and then in 2015, three quarters of the hospitals um, received some sort of uh, penalty, um, and only 39 pe- hospitals, one uh, percent of all hospitals, uh, received the full three percent penalty. So when they give, when you get the penalty, it's actually on all of your reimbursement from CMS, not just on those patients that are readmitted, which is really, really important. Um, we do have readmission uh, penalties that we receive from some of our commercial payers as well, it's, but theirs is different in that theirs is a, usually a 15-day readmission penalty, and you actually don't get paid for that second admission at all. So that's very much focused on the patient versus Medicare really looked at all of your reimbursement. And so um, pretty significantly. Then um, for this now, for this past year, for 2016, um, there's about $420 million that, um, that hospitals are really getting um, hit with. And for us, in New Hampshire and Vermont, um, we had 11 hospitals that were uh, penalized, um, and, but, the, but it had come down 20%, um, and Vermont had uh, four hospitals. And we have received no penalties in all of the years that we've been, they've been looking at this, which is pretty phenomenal. Um, and as we've looked at our data around um, where we stand in the country, uh, we're in the top 1% um, in terms of uh, uh, high performance. Uh, around our uh, readmissions. Our challenge will be though as we go forward, which is why it's important for us all to understand this, is that everyone else is gonna start to catch up with us. So we have to continue doing this, but our challenges are that we've done a lot of the low-hanging fruit. So we now need to really get into the nitty-gritty about looking at specific patient populations and figuring out how we can impact those patients. So I wanna just briefly talk about some of the definitions. This has been a challenge for our readmission committee because every organization has a different way of looking at it. Um, you know, so Medicare specifically looks at those patients who are over 65 um, and are getting you know, acute care inpatient within 30 days. As I said, some of our commercial payers, it's 15 days. Um, our hospital engagement network, so let me just talk a minute about that. Um, As part of all this work, Medicare gave some dollars, uh, actually offered up to people to apply to be a hospital engagement network. Um, And in the state of New Hampshire, the hospital association actually applied for that, became a hospital engagement network, which meant they would bring as as many hospitals that wanted to underneath one roof and try to start to work on some of these, um, some of the readmission issues, but also around some of other um, healthcare-acquired conditions. Um, And... uh, our, our state one was a little bit later than what we needed. So we actually went with um, Intermountain Health. Um, and so some of our data has been being shared through Intermountain Health. We have to share that data. And it helps us with some of our comparisons so we can understand how well we're doing. But in the head data, they're looking at patients over the age of 18. So another another way to slice and dice the data. Hospital compare. Anyone ever been on... CMS.gov and gone to look at our hospital compare data. It's quite interesting. It's very often retrospective, so there's not, you know, it takes a while to get data put up there. Um, And I've gone on and looked at it and then tried to compare it with our data that we actually have. And it doesn't always mesh, um, again, because of how they're calculating it behind the scenes. Um, and so it is, a, um, it is a tough area for us to utilize that data, but it is what's out there in the public. So people can see that data around our readmissions. Um, and uh, in, in some of that data, their unplanned readmissions do not include the patients who died um, during that first admission um, and or who left AMA. So that is a group that gets excluded. We've also belonged to the University Health Consortium um, and their data really looks at all cause, all cause. And so um, again, an area, another way for us to sort. But we've done a lot of comparisons of our own data to each of these uh, different entities and so that's been helpful um, before us. But their exclusions are really, um, they do exclude the pediatric population but then also really excluded some of those, um, again, those uh, planned planned, uh, admissions. So again, as I was trying to prepare for, um, for this, I'm looking again about what kind of studies have been done out there. And um, this I think is gonna be really important to us as we start to think about how do we get, continue to improve our readmissions. So Harvard Med School has done um, a review of about 8,000 um, CMS Medicare um, admissions to look at their all cause within 30 days. And they really looked at a bunch of different factors. Uh, focused on education, income, smoking, work status, you know, some of the ADLs for our patients. Um, they found a 50% difference between hospitals with the highest and lowest rates could be explained by these 29 factors. So how do we start to look at these readmissions for Medicare patients, but Medicare patients who also are on Medicaid? Because the social, social economic piece as they saw it, really impacted the differences in the rates of readmissions. So this will be very interesting um, to start to see. This was just published this summer. So this will be really interesting to see how Medicare starts to look at this and how they calculate it. So some best practices in the United States. And I will tell you, over the years, we have looked at every single one of these different best practices. And what we have learned is that there's bits and pieces we can take from each of them. And no, no one single thing is going to fix our readmission issues. It is really a myriad of programs, plans, initiatives that are gonna help us to get there. Um, so there's a program called RED, Reengineered Hospital Discharge Program. Um, very uh, prescriptive, some of these are all very prescriptive, number of visits, number of phone calls made to patients. Um, and for this, they have a discharge discharge advocate Um, They do follow-up, they do med-rec, they do a lot of the patient education. Um, And then they also have a pharmacist who um, calls that patient um, within two to four days of discharge. Um, Mary Naylor, very well published in this arena around readmissions, Um, really is focused on a transitional care model um, and have very much focus on that plan of care and what those patient-centered goals are. What does the patient want Um, and how do we engage the patient in this work? Um, And they really have tried to look across the continuum. Eric Coleman, who's probably the most spoken, he's actually spoken here um, in the past several times. Um, Again, very focused, a little different from Mary Naylor's, um, and uh, focused on that patient goals, um, hospital visit, home visit, and follow-up calls. So they sort of have these four pillars that they function under. Um, You can actually, all of this is actually on the internet. You can easily go download all of the, uh, particularly their data, the others you can as well, but um, Eric's is very, very um, written out. Um, And so they look at, you know, med management, as we know, a major issue. um, That patient's personal health record, so things travel with them from wherever they go. Um, what kind of PCP and specialist follow-up, and uh, what f- red flags that patient has. And then we have Project Boost as well. Again, very, very, very similar. I keep on losing my screen. <laughs> Come on. Uh, yeah. So, some of our best practices. Um, I focused some on my care management because that's where I grew up here in the organization. Um, and a lot of the work started to happen when we, when we pulled um, our care management program together um, and in, in 91. And then in 1996, we actually were one of few organizations across the country that really started to look at ambulatory um, case management. Um, and at that point, hired both nurses and social workers to do some of that work. Um, and then we, from 2002 to 2007, participated in our, on our Medicare physician group practice demonstration project. Anybody here, I think some of the care coordinators may remember some of that work that we did um, years ago, um, really started to focus on our medical homes and primary care um, and started to build a lot of that infrastructure in primary care. We had a lot of quality metrics we had to meet um, to, to participate in this um, physician group practice demonstration. Um, and again, over the years, we've worked a lot with Dr. Kono around all of our health, uh, heart failure care maps. Um, We tried a bridge program, hospital-to-home bridge program. The care management staff will remember that. I don't know if others, but we had a nurse and a physician and a social worker actually out doing home visits, Um, and uh, we've It gradually sort of fell apart. I think it really did a lot. What ended up happening, though, is we ended up, you know, we were hoping it would be a more short term thing, and we ended up getting involved with patients for a very long time. So it was harder to keep up with the volumes that we had. Um, I think we also had some coordination pieces with home care um, that were challenging at times because we both couldn't be in the house at the same time, in the home at the same day. Um, And so some of our billing pieces were a challenge, and a lot of these patients appropriately had home care um, involved with them. Um, but we've, we still have some home visiting happening, um, particularly from primary care. They are still going out, the geriatric team is going out and doing home visits. So um, it's still out there, but in a little different format than what we used to have. Um, in 2011, we developed our, our care coordinator roles in primary care. Um, and um, over the last couple of years, we've piloted, I'm sorry, the bottom thing is not showing up on the screen well. Uh, we piloted a transition um, nurse um, both in the adult world and in pediatrics. And pediatrics has actually uh, been doing it for the last couple of years. Um, and they're in the process of reevaluating it to really understand, is this the model that works best? Um, we tried it, uh, we had a three month pilot in the adult world. Um, it was not enough time for us to really evaluate it. And so again, I think something that we need to look at. Um, there's been discussion again around roles such as um, healthcare navigators, nurse navigators. And some of that's been happening in the, in the <clears throat> Cancer Center, for example. So, again, we'll we'll continue to tweak all this and continue to look at what's the best thing for us. In 2013, we actually um, looked at, a, we did a toolkit for heart failure patients. We also trialed um, the LACE tool. Um, and um, we've continued to look at the LACE tool. In our new uh, ESI system, we'll have the ability, we've put in a pretty uh, benign readmission risk um, uh, tool in there, and I think we'll continue to tweak that and try and see what you can come up with. There are, again, many different tools out there. Uh, we just got to figure out sort of how do we, how do we let our, our staff, our frontline staff, know that this is an at-risk patient, and what, what's the best tool to do that? So uh, we'll, ha- we'll continue to have ongoing uh, work and discussion around that. Uh, We've been doing a lot of formal complex care rounds. Um, We've increased our interdisciplinary rounding on the units this last um, year or two. And again, I know we're not all there everywhere, but it's a really big piece that we need to continue to to work on. Um, We've been doing a lot of work with the High Value Healthcare Collaborative, particularly around heart failure. Dr. Kono's been very engaged in that work. As you all know, we've been participating in the Pioneer ACO. Um, Our care coordinators in primary care have been very, very engaged across our system. Um, in this work. Um, And uh, we're gonna talk a little bit more about the um, the Pioneer ACO um, waiver. So I just want to set the stage for what our current data is like right now. Um, We actually, on the inpatient side, I do have the data um, and we've shared it, but I would get it out, I'll get it out more. Um, I've been to um, our uh, shared governance practice councils to talk about what is our data uh, by unit and by service. Um, so we do have that, and um, so we will starting to get out there and make sure that that's included as part of our quality data that we're sharing. So this is the um, our hen data. This is all cause readmissions, um, and as you see, we hover around 10%. at times we're down to you know 9, sometimes 8.5, but this is where we've been. So we haven't had a huge impact. This goes back to June of 2013. Um, so we have work to continue to do to get us you know below this. Um, we'd like to be down at eight, is where we would like to be. So what's it gonna take for us to get there? And um, this is the Medicare um, readmission rate. Um, again, pretty similar, a little higher, which you would expect. Um, and uh, But we may, you know, the trend is looks a little bit lower um, than it was when we, when we began. So some of our um, readmission projects, I'm gonna turn over and let Dr. Crawlett talk about. Thanks.
2: So, uh, again, thank you for uh, inviting me to speak. Um, Readmissions, 30 days, uh, it's um, kind of a daunting number, and CMS uh, somewhat arbitrarily uh, chose it, and despite their um, risk analysis and risk adjustments, um, it really uh, penetrates different facilities very, very differently. And in that, we get a break on some things. You know, We have a largely English-speaking population who largely has homes of one type or another. We're not on the El Paso border. We have uh, low incidence of um, illegal aliens, foreign language speakers, and whatnot. So we get a break on that end. Where we don't get a break is that we're an insurance-blind teaching institution that takes care of all comers. And so... How these things mix in, um, there was an interesting article in JAMA published in July about the socioeconomic drivers of hospitals, and so um, a hospital like ours is uh, disproportionately affected by these types of um, mandates of 30 days and putting that down as a surrogate for patient care when, frankly, we may give excellent care, and I think we do give excellent care at our institution. So, having that as a surrogate marker is not necessarily fair, but it's what we have to work under. So, as Darlene mentioned, uh, the low hanging fruit is gone. We have a great institution, we have great people at all levels doing great patient care, but moving that marker from the kind of 9, 10% range down to 8% is going to be a challenging um, endeavor. And so, as other institutions catch up, while we're still glowing, we don't look quite as stellar in comparison. And so we want to change that, we want to continue to glow. Um, So some of the projects that we've taken on um, is uh, chronic pancreatitis, uh, in particular, is a very challenging patient population with high um, recidivism and uh, recurrent admissions. Um, uh, This is a project that we've assigned a a physician lead, Dr. Ducto, with a core team with Dr. Tim Gardner in in the uh, clinics. Heart failure, Alan Kono, is just a champion of what we're doing here in keeping patients with continuing care managers, uh, working with cohorts of patients uh, along the spectrum of um, uh, heart failure, knowing that this is a population that will... I've lost this too. There we go. We know these patients are going to get readmitted. So how do we maximize their health care? And we have an exceptional level of readmissions while maximizing their quality of life and patient care moving forward. Uh, Surgical teams um, led uh, by Horace and and, uh, have and vascular teams have looked at uh, readmission risks, in particular uh, wound infection and wound care uh, follow-up, because these are the areas, the infections that often cause uh, readmissions, and looking at indexes uh, um, in addition and above (coughs) and beyond the LACE tool that can look at our particular... Um, subspecialty populations, and how do we predict readmission before they even occur and through that prediction, we implement strategies to prevent the readmission before it even occurs. Um, you know pharmacy is trialing uh, different uh, options around teach back and and uh, calling pharmacies ahead of time and ensuring that our med reconciliation is uh, completely accurate. We know we put patients on, especially at 2 o'clock in the morning, we know we put patients on the wrong medications as they walk in the door, and how do we prevent that? How do we merge these computer systems, these ICT systems, to talk to one another while respecting patient privacy and HIPAA laws um, to get patients on the right medications and not cause iatrogenesis? That's a very challenging um, population and, um, and set of uh, dynamics to work with. Um, teach back with nursing, very critical. As I mentioned at the beginning, the key piece, discharging the patient and ensuring that the patient knows their instructions and that transfer to the outpatient world, whether it be the SNF, whether it be the home, uh, VNA, back to the primary care physician. If the patient doesn't understand their instructions, we will have a readmission and so that is just such a key piece.
1: So just to add one piece on the teach back. So we've, we have brought this to our, our practice councils and we have some areas that are really interested in looking at this. So we're trying to connect with some outside hospitals that have been very successful in this to really think about how we can, how we can implement it. It's very, it can be very, very scripted um, for our nurses so that there's you know, key questions that we're asking on, on the admission and then the next day and the next day and you continue to structure it. So it is a piece of work that we know um, that we're gonna, we're gonna be moving forward with.
2: So, again, other products we're looking at, we have a COPD readmission team with um, Allison Tuchette, Jeff Munson, and myself looking at identifying this cohort of population, which is one of the things that CMS added in 2015 as one of the uh, diagnoses that they're looking very carefully at in terms of our penalties. Um, That said, we wanted to do this anyway. It shouldn't be a penalty driving this. This is patient care. This is high-quality patient care. And some of the connections that we're doing with Imagine Care Next should really be an exciting thing, with, in particular with COPD and a bracelet and and predicting uh, COPD flares before they even happen. Um, redefining against medical advice, this is something that Elias Lucas will be presenting on, um, something that we don't do much here. We're very, I would say, we're a kinder, gentler facility, and we often discharge patients um, with with a uh, terminology that states uh, declined sniff referral, declined VNA, um, prefers to manage at home. And what these actually are, are against medical advice uh, admissions. And why is this important? It's important in two ways. It can actually drive the patient to the appropriate level of care with, um, I hate to use the word threat, but when paperwork or the discussion of against medical advice comes into play, the patient sometimes accepts the medical advice. So if we know this patient is going to fail, they're frail, they cannot manage at home, they're going to fall, they're going to have a head bleed, and we discuss with them, yes, you may go home, but we'd like you to sign this form that says against medical advice. I've had two personal experiences where the patient and the patient's family said, fine, I'll go to rehab. And that was what I wanted. That was what I wanted. I did not want this patient to go home. I did not want them to sign the paperwork. But if they do go home, that paperwork protects us against a readmission because that is one of the exclusion criteria that CMS has allowed. That if patients leave AMA, we should not be responsible for a readmission that is not due to fault of our own due to um, medical noncompliance. And so um, we're going to be looking at that, and so you may see more AMA admissions coming your way on the floor.
1: So I was just gonna talk about the last bullet up there, which is a product that um, we've been using actually, it's called Emmy, and we've been using it for the last couple of years, but primarily to really reach out to patients and families around flu vaccine, mammographies, colonoscopies. So it's an interactive voice system, Um, And again, we've done presentations to uh, multiple groups here in the organization. Um, We've also actually, for those of you in the surgical areas, um, your patients, if they're coming through same-day program, are getting a call from Emmy to prepare them for their admission. Um, So we've just had some recent meetings um, in the emergency room. Again, same thing, patients who maybe are going home directly from the emergency room to be able to do follow-up phone calls. Um, as well as patients who are going to get admitted, so they get the call, they get the information in real time on a on a tablet to let them know what to expect when they get to the fall, uh, to the floor. Um, we are working with COPD and and heart failure as well as our two areas. We probably will pilot this in, um, but but it is an automated phone call system that would um, happen after discharge. So we're truly trying to scope which patients we could trial this with, um, and having multiple meetings as we speak. I think again, I think our met with a lot of the nursing leaders and, and staff around this and a lot of excitement. Um, I think it would take some of the work off of some of our care coordinators in primary care who are trying to do all of those post-discharge calls as, whether some, as well as some of our other surgical areas um, are, are calling a lot of patients post-procedure as well. So trying to put some other things in place. Um, it is an automated call. Um, you know. So it is, for some of our patients, they may struggle with some of that. Um, our hope is actually we'll be able to integrate it with in EDH, um, so we'd be able to assign those patients right from EDH um, and probably in the near future. Um, so we're, we're working on the processes to go there, but a really great opportunity for us to, to enhance what we're already doing and they've had some great data around uh, their avoidance of readmissions from their other hospitals they're working with.
2: So low-hanging fruit gone. <laughs> Welcome to pancreatitis. Uh, now, the patient who doesn't get readmitted is a gallstone pancreatitis, a nicely compliant person who, um, unfortunately, gets a gallstone stuck, gets pancreatitis and resolves and go home. But um, pancreatitis also has a um, high substance abuse population and uh, henceforth recidivism rates. And so that's why you see the curve here uh, bouncing all over the place. It's... Um, very sharp and we have a uh, small cohort of patients that cause most of our readmissions in fact I think three percent three to four patients can cause over fifty percent of our readmissions in this um, in this uh, arena and so having actually developed uh, large-scale care plans in addition to personalized care plans for particular patients is going to be huge in us lowering our um, okay. thanks lowering our readmissions rate for Pancreatitis. As I said, it's a small cohort, high readmissions. Um, In particular, (coughs) three patients really drive a lot of readmissions. But we have a couple of dozen here with 150 readmissions in 18 months. These are the people we need to look at very closely, drill down what can we do. We're working with the pancreas clinic. We've developed um, a Monday pancreas clinic. So, uh, in the, lost it again here, um, in we know that we can uh, guarantee a uh, follow-up visit in the hospital that following Monday. Um, and so the longest anyone would go post-discharge uh, would be approximately six days uh, to have a follow-up appointment in the pancreas clinic. Um, developing uh, efforts um, with the ED to get patients home from the ED, hospital medicine, case management, social work, so and the pancreas clinic to really develop uh, transition plans that are gonna keep these patients out um, Again, we're trying to reduce admissions by about 50% in this population. Um, probably the most challenging population,
1: I would say. One piece we didn't put in here is that over the course of some of this time the last few years, we've also had an ED registry. So, these patients in particular had some of them 18, 20 readmissions within a very six month period. So, so, we've been looking at that data. So, it was really a compilation working with the ED, our care managers in the ED, um, Justin and our, our, our medical directors in care management to really focus on this group of patients. And as we looked at all of the hospitalist data, this is the group that jumped out for us in terms of what we could have an impact on. So,
2: so now we have taping. <laughs> you <I'm> on it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you get no- more readmissions,
2: right, now that you're on board? <laughs> Co- COPD, um, compared uh, nationwide, uh, it, it's as high as 20 to 25%, depending on how hospitals are broken down. We actually do um, uh, fairly well in comparison to our peers. But uh, one of the things that's suspect with our COPD readmission rate, and we certainly don't want to get penalized for, is um, whether or not our patients actually have COPD. <coughs> and so defining the cohort uh, becomes primary, to actually treating the patients correctly. We have patients that come in that have been on inhalers for years who haven't had PFT testing, it turns out they have interstitial lung disease or heart failure. And so are we treating the right patient population? Uh, Alison Tuchette, um, wonderful associate provider working with um, Jeff Munson, is uh, looking at our uh, two um, COPD CPT, ICD-9 codes of coming in as primary and secondary diagnoses, looking at each and every one of those, and deciding, do they have a documented COPD? Do they have pulmonary function tests? Is there, an <coughs> is there an alternate diagnosis that is equally likely? Why should we get dinged on a readmission, readmission if they didn't actually have COPD? And so, um, understanding that cohort, and once we have that defined cohort, then we can have continuing case managers working with these people, um, and. Allison Tuchet is going down to see uh, patients on hospital medicine uh, individually and developing care plans for them, follow-up PFTs, and uh, when appropriate, uh, getting them hooked up. Uh, now we're going to have a cohort hooked up with Imagine Care and remote sensors. Uh, this is really exciting technology, especially us who have a rural population, um, and it's difficult for people to get down to see pulmonologists. We don't have pulmonologists in the Twin State region outside of um, several select medical centers. And so if we, can, uh, if we can use this remote sensing technology where all of a sudden a patient uses their inhaler twice a day for six straight months, and in a period of 12 to 18 hours they use their inhaler 16 times, what's going on? We call that patient up, we find out they fired up their wood stove for the first time, and they're developing a flare, getting them into their PCP. They don't have to come to us, they get into their PCP. They get put on a steroid uh, burst at their PCP's office, preventing an admission, preventing a flare before it ever even gets going. And this is huge. I mean, we are, these are predictive modeling based upon web, web-based web uh, technologies where the inhaler automatically tells the bracelet that they're using, they're using a, their puffer, or how many times are they using their nebulizer, that gets uploaded into set criteria that's being looked at by our Imagine care team that it, it pops up. We get a call from the nurse that calls them up and says, how are you doing? And then when they say, well, actually, my husband's using the inhaler. <laughs> we have a different care plan. <laughs> so, um, you know, pulmonary rehab is also a place where we're lacking. We do not refer enough patients to pulmonary rehab. Pulmonary rehab has evidence-based medicine and documented care that says this reduces readmissions, it reduces COPD flares, it promotes quality of life. Uh, We know uh, lung tissue does not repair at this stage of the game, but how do we maximize the lung tissue that's there to give people the best um, activity, quality of life that they can moving forward? This country has invested very heavily in cardiac rehab. I would say that this country has done a very poor job in promoting pulmonary rehab, and actually as a a, uh, member of the COPD Foundation, one of the things that I'm promoting um, is that pulmonary rehab gets put to the forefront, just like cardiac rehab. And so that hospitals across, whether you're in rural Iowa, rural Alaska, rural Vermont, that says, if you don't have pulmonary rehab, we do by the way, great pulmonary rehab. <laughs> but as you get farther afield, people don't. And so look around, After asking your hospital administrators, why don't we have pulmonary rehab around us? Um, because ultimately, when you provide 90% of the pulmonologists for an entire region, they're coming our way. So we need to provide these services. Okay, so heart failure, again, this is Alan Kono's um, uh, thing. We sit uh, very well, we float between 8 and 10%, which is excellent, because, again, this is a patient with a very uh, high readmission rate. I'm going to speed up just a little bit here. Uh, one of the things that, you know, Alan uh, often says when he gives a talk is, everybody's very scared when they get the cancer diagnosis. Oh, my gosh, I have cancer. I'm going to die. Or the family's devastated, and it, it is. It's the C word. It's this awful, awful thing but the reality is many many types of cancers have 5, 10, 20 year uh, mortality Um, there obviously are very bad cancers that are devastating to family but heart failure doesn't have that and the mortality of this patient population is absolutely terrifying if you look at it 30 day mortality is is very very high and And they have a very predictable course as they go through the class 1, 2, 3, 4 classifications. And how are we doing with this population? And when are we using the appropriate time to refer them to to hospice and or palliative methods? 11% 30-day mortality. This is my favorite slide. (laughs) It's it's a really amazing slide, and I wish you could probably spend 20 minutes talking about it. But the idea is, again, if you look at this this um first couple of months, you see this first bump in uh, readmission times, and this is really the sick patients getting discharged. Do they have a good discharge plan? Do they have follow-up? You know, it levels off because we know despite our best efforts, heart failure patients are going to come in. We can't predict everything that happens to them. And then that spike, a uh, uh, year and a half uh, later, w- what's happening in this uh, spike over here, where uh, right here? And are we doing right by the patient here? Is this where this patient is coming in, you know, every, coming in every three months, every two months, every two weeks, every three days? And are we doing right by this patient? Is this a patient that should be referred to hospice level care? Again, um, which segues into this slide, which says comparing hospice and non-hospice patient survival. There's evidence that shows that patients, uh, evidence-based medicine that shows hospice um, care delivers a higher quality of life Uh, than uh, non-hospice care. And so if you overlay a higher quality of life and a greater longevity of life, this tells us at this point that... uh, My screen here again. At this point, um, when we've transitioned the patient to quality of life measures and hospice level of care, this is the appropriate transition of care for this patient population. We're not doing right by loading patients up with medications and turning them into the hospital. Uh, every three days towards the end of their life. The goal would be to die on hospice, uh, preferentially at home, not in our ICU. Sniff waiver. Uh, So, as many of you may have heard, we dropped out of the Pioneer ACO um, backdated to January 1st. Uh, The announcement came out just last week, um, which was um, disheartening to us because we think this is a wonderful uh, CMS innovation that uh, we applied for, and... Achieved, um, but that being said, we are very um, we're very hopeful that through next generation pioneer ACO as of January first, twenty sixteen, this will get reactivated, and um, we feel pretty confident that that will happen. But what is the three day waiver? As all case managers know, it's that awful, terrible thing that predates uh, us is back to the fifties when hospitalizations lasted so much longer, and a three day hospitalization was the minimum. Um, and so, uh, patients have to be, hosp- CMS patients have to be, Medicare has to be hospitalized for three days to qualify for Sniff placement, and uh, observations uh, nights don't count, how that makes any sense whatsoever is ludicrous, but in their infinite wisdom they still haven't replaced it, but they've at least um, approved some waivers. They oftentimes do this in times of emergencies, Hurricane Sandy was an example, Red River floods in the Dakotas and whatnot, they waive these requirements when patients need, when there's a huge bed crunch in uh, catastrophes to get patients to where they need to go. Well, if it needs to happen in catastrophe, why can't it just happen when we're at capacity and we're wasting inpatient beds on services that can be uh, delivered in a, in a lower level of care? And so basically, what is it? It's a um, three-day waiver and in the Pioneer ACO, we're responsible for the total cost of the care delivered The idea is to decrease expenditures, maintain or actually better yet, improve quality of care and give it in their own communities at the right level of care. Why do patients need to come into the hospital if they can go to their PCP, get a direct admission for rehab when that's all they need? And so, um, again, our clinics and our EDs, we'd love to get these patients. If they're on observation, we'd like to get them there, um, get them directly without uh, having these barriers or how patients are going to pay for it. But really the clinics in the emergency room have excellent opportunities. And the first case just happened to us uh, two nights ago where we had a uh, morbidly obese um, patient who uh, had an ankle strain. And uh, they called up asking for admission because she couldn't navigate around um, her house. And they wanted hospital medicine to admit the patient. We'll never get reimbursed for that. It doesn't meet criteria for hospitalization. But what this patient did need was rehab. And so if they were a member of Pioneer ACO and 10 days ago, we could have put that patient <laughs> in. <laughs> so it was immensely frustrating to see that. Um, I don't think I have to discuss skilled. Um, this was delivered to a different top of skilled examples um, to case managers. Um, this was our uh, acute and direct admission. And what this uh, meant was patients who admitted inpatient with a less than three-day stay versus direct admissions um, to our partners, um, Genesis, Brookside, and Mount Scutney take the bulk of our admissions, but uh, direct would be someone from the ED uh, or the clinic, and acute actually included uh, less than three minute inpatient stays and observations. Um, Again, we started this in October. It took a little bit of uh, time to pick up, but um, collectively, uh, you know, it's interesting to think about what does this mean to the institution when we're at capacity and we can't take patients in? One bed in this institution represents a million dollars of revenue per year. And so every patient that we can deliver to the appropriate level of care opens up the patient to receive inpatient level of care, patients who need hospitalization, deliver to the community what we provide as a tertiary quaternary care center while not wasting beds and, frankly, the the financial um, status and our fiduciary responsibility to use our beds appropriately for our institution.
1: So just to add, so this was done throughout our system. So all of our community group practices were working on this as well um, to be able to patients in their region. So what we have up here is really patients from from Lebanon. um, And um, you saw a few of the uh, nursing homes and our swing beds listed up there. Um, They had to meet a certain threshold of quality in order to be able to be a part of this waiver. Um, And so some of our local facilities didn't quite meet that, and so they were not included in it. Um, And we had just actually Cottage Hospital, um, who seems to have the most beds on any given day, um, to be able to take a lot of our patients, actually just came on this spring, and so now they they haven't had the opportunity. But we've been really reassured that this will start back up, um, as well as um, the ACO in Vermont, OneCare, they're applying for the new ACO as well, NextGen, and um, they also then will be able to uh, apply to do the waiver. So we'll be able to do it for um, our patients in, in either state, which is really exciting.
2: Again, the infinite wisdom of CMS allows, uh, it was a three-star quality rating that the nursing home needed to uh, have to be able to accept these patients, and yet our VA is all-government-insured populations, don't need to meet that three-star rating. So we can have, if a patient gets um, admitted to us, discharged under the Medicare benefit, they cannot go to a two-star rated facility, whereas that same patient may get admitted across the river and can go. Uh, some of the reasons uh, that we send uh, folks under the waiver, and I think for me, one of the primary reasons where we see this in the clinic and uh, emergency room, it's falls. Falls is just—it's unbelievable. Um, you know, our elderly population, our debilitated population, and that all it takes is one fall to not merit hospitalization, but absolutely um, take someone out of the game and. Uh, unable to, uh, to be able to um, have independent activities of daily living and require uh, sniff uh placement.
1: So I know this has been a lot of work to do the SNF waiver for our care coordinators because they were really point once the patients left the hospital. Um, and I know we've engaged with home care as well because they've been able to refer patients. So um, hopefully we'll get it back up and, go- and going and we're excited about this. So I think the other piece for us as we think about what our roles are um, as we're transitioning patients to that next level of care, Um, is what do they understand? And so this is some of the conversation I was talking about in terms of teach back, making sure they understand our symptoms, what their weights are, how we do all this work, um, and looking at other technologies that are gonna help us. So we're very excited by the Imagine Care, by the Emmy product that we're implementing and hoping that we're gonna see some significant um, changes in our readmission rate. Um, But it starts with all of you that are at the bedside having those conversations with our patients and their families. So simple rules to remember, you know, how we, how we identify those patients that are at risk. If we think about the level of care we provide here, almost every single patient that practically comes in our door um, is high risk. <laughs> um, it's, it's just who we are as a tertiary quaternary hospital. Um, looking at our discharge summary, making sure that we actually um, uh, are looking at the AVS that we're giving to patients so it's clear with what those instructions are. How we reconcile meds. Um, pharmacy's been actually doing a lot of that work on our medical specialties. They've had a greenbelt project. So they've really been looking at that whole med rec piece and really focusing on those high-risk meds. Um, You know, what's that hotline? Who's that patient gonna call when they leave here? Um, Are we doing those post-discharge calls? Um, Getting patients to get seen within seven days, not always easy, (laughs) not always easy. Um, and I think that's where, you know, we've talked to primary care a lot about it. Um, patient doesn't have to go just to primary care. They can go to their specialty providers as well. So as we continue to look at access in our system, we need, this is an area that is of critical importance. Um, palliative care. Um, you know, this is really a, a critical piece. Having discussions um, with our patients earlier on. that That's why I like that heart failure chart because, you know, we have to have those discussions early on. We can't wait till they... Um, hit that level where they're all of a sudden going to start having more problems. We need to have those conversations first thing. Um, And I think when we have our heart failure clinic involved with patients, that happens more frequently than when it's a patient who is not involved in our heart failure program. So um, when they're in the hospital, identifying those patients early so we can make sure we're having those um, conversations. And then really looking at um, doing case studies, um, case conferencing with some of these patients that are really high risk for us. I think we've also started to see um, and implemented this last year our behavioral intervention team, which is another way to start to address sort of some of how those behavioral components fit in uh, to the overall uh, plan of care for patients. So I just wanted to highlight this because Dr. Crowett has actually written um, uh, an article with uh, Dr. Cook around our Pioneer ACO, So that information is available if anyone wants to read it. Um, and there is just, as I said, there's a um, ton of data on the CMS website. Um, Kaiser Health News is the other one that is just everything you go to look at. They have a report almost every week around readmissions. So if you're interested in this topic, it's a great place to go and understand some of that. So questions? I wonder if there are conversations
0: going on about sort of increasing the, the partnerships between care coordination and inpatient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Management, yep. and sort of form handoffs and, um, and conversations.
1: Yep. And I, I think some of that was happening as part of the SNF waiver because we had to do that, that handoff. So, it, it, because really, it, you know, there was a piece that ended on the hospital piece, and then the care right. coordinator needed to be the one following up with the patient when they went to the SNF. Um, I think as we continue to integrate in, in EDH, yeah. um, there is great opportunity for us to do a lot more around our overall plan of care for the patient. Yeah. Um, and we've had those conversations with the EDH team around, you know, there's information that the ambulatory side has about patients that in, unless we have the time, which is hard to go in and read notes, we don't always have that on the, on the inpatient side. So how do we bridge that gap? Yeah. So I think I, absolutely that is work that we need, we need to continue to do.
2: And that's yeah. a unique opportunity that we have where our clinics are associated with the right. hospital. I mean, hospitals are penalized as the, as the primary institution, but if these conversations aren't occurring with private practice clinics, uh, you know, how is, wh- why is the hospital penalized for that? And so we actually have that unique ability that a huge proportion of our population is served either through primary or subspecialty care here. And so it, that's an opportunity we actually have to take.
1: It's interesting, as we've been talking about implementing EMI, um, really easy for us to do it when it's our own practice, right? So if there's issues when they're on the phone with the patient, they can refer them right to the primary care. But if it's not our primary care physician, then you know, we're, we're going to have to go out and do some education with them to help them to understand that they're going to get that patient referred back to them. Um, so that, those are the conversations we've been asking sort of what's that workflow um, from the uh, EMI uh, staff so we can understand how we do that. Kathy, did you have something you wanted well, to respond?
0: I the CARE, Speaking about that the care coordinated care management staff would mm-hmm. be able to use that to help the planet yep. module and EDH,
2: yep. because that seems like that would be a good opportunity, I think, to have for the assessment should mm-hmm. we have the
1: carry rate through it. Yes, so Kathy, I'm sorry, I was supposed to repeat the first question. Um, So uh, Kathy Kaminsky was asking around um, the new module that's in EDH um, that hopefully we will all be able to document it and see some of that. So if that goal planning was happening in the ambulatory side, then we could see that and understand that on the inpatient side because it it isn't easy to go back and forth between the two systems. So I, I agree, Kathy, I think that's a great opportunity for us. Yeah. So just to clarify for myself, the, uh, the CMS defines readmissions. It's for any diagnosis. It's not just for that same thing that they came in for. They could come, CHF patient could come back for a sepsis within thirty days, and we get dinged for that as well. Yes. So it's cut off, um, We do. So Basically, we get dinged. On, sorry.
2: No, go ahead. We get dinged on total readmissions, thirty-day readmissions, and then uh, particular subsets. And so the penalties are based upon total readmissions and these subset populations. How we're doing for right. each of those.
1: The commercials are a little different, and uh, we had just a great success story this week in that we had a patient who who went home with one diagnosis and clearly about five days later was readmitted with a totally unrelated, and we had to defend that. Um, And the charges were $80,000, and so we were able to defend that, and we got paid. Um, We're going to get paid. (laughs) We just learned that it was was, um, accepted. And so that's the work we have to do. We have to help the payers to understand that it's not always – you know, can you match them up that it's related to that first admission? And this one clearly was not. And, um, you know, great work to, to turn that around.
2: Unfortunately, CMS doesn't care. We yeah, no, CMS know. isn't they in that world. That car accident after a heart failure discharge yeah. is a readmission. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes?
0: How easy would it be, though, if you, if you have a diagnosis of COPD, but you were saying that it really wasn't COPD, it was something
1: else? How easy is it for you guys to remove that from the previous diagnosis list?
2: Because once you're diagnosed, it follows you for attorney. Right, it lives in the chart. And that's one of the things we've talked about, in, in particular with the COPD um, project that we're working on, is that we are um, actively uh, removing uh, diagnoses, and, uh, usually in conjunction with um, talking to the PCP or the pulmonologist and saying, is it okay if we do this? We don't have documented PFPs. And most of the time, they shrug and say, sure. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're convinced clinically they have COPD and they're not willing to, uh, to let that go. And so, it, you know, it, it's there's some politics involved. Um, but uh, we are actively removing diagnoses because all it takes is one wheeze in the emergency room. You get admitted to hospital medicine, you have one wheeze, oh, it's probably COPD, send them out on steroids, follow up PCP. It never had it. It might be reactive airway disease. It might be low-level asthma, interstitial lung disease, heart
1: failure. One of our challenges is that we do not code on admission. So sometimes being able to identify these patients up front uh, is really a challenge, and the heart failure team struggles with it all the time you know they 've looked at some other indicators you know patients who are on Lasix, patients who may be on some other medications, um, but it is not easy for us to do um, and that 's why it is really important for us the problem is to be kept up to date because it will help us on those readmissions you know and and I think when we identify where we have some high readmissions, you know how do we have conversations with those, those teams so as we looked at the unit readmissions, for example, in service, HEMOC really spiked for us. We said, oh my goodness, why is HEMOC so hard? And I, I don't have the ending of the story, but I know that one of the things that we were concerned about is that they were even their patients who were coming back in scheduled because they wanted to make sure they got a bed, they were booking them as urgent. So I don't know where that's landed, if we've been able to resolve that, but they wanted that bed. And so we've said, no, 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 <laughs> because that then's going to drive that um, as we go forward. And if it was a scheduled, it will get pulled out of our data. So um, the other p- piece is that gets actually pulled out of the data from in the ACOs, et cetera, is when we do move patients to hospice. Um, they do That does not count um, against the organization. It doesn't count against our mortality data um, as, either. So um, another piece for us as we continue. As you may or may not know, we'll be building our, we are going in the process of moving forward, with building our own hospice center. And so over the course of the next year or two, we'll be moving more and more patients to hospice, even when they're in the hospital. Um, Because we have a lot of patients here that are are sitting here that are comfort measures only. And and so trying to say, are they in the right, really, are they getting the care they need um, with that too. Any other last minute? Because we're running... I have Carla. two questions. If it goes beyond the thirty day, like if it's on the thirty first day, do you track near misses so that you mm-hmm. can intercept earlier the next time? And the uh, DHMC, this building's affiliates, non-affiliates, if they get readmitted or from an outside hospital, does the government track that thirty day window? Are they cognizant of that, or does only to come back here? Yep. So um, the first piece around, are we tracking patients who um, maybe come back in 31 days? Um, We haven't looked at that as much, um, but I think a lot of those patients end up falling on some of our our patients who are here really long time (laughs) as well. And so we're looking at that. The care management team's looking at it. Um, And your second question about the affiliates. So uh, because we've been in the demonstration in the ACO, uh, we have been able to get some data about our patients who get re admitted at other hospitals. So that w- th- it's been pretty eye-opening um, for us to understand that. Um, you know, the critical access hospitals that surround us, because we are surrounded by critical access hospitals, um, they are, they are uh, under this same um, uh, regulation, um, but really a lot of their readmissions end up coming to us. Um, and so we really have reached out to them. Um, I think our other work is also with our um, our skilled nursing facilities as well, another area. And um, it's work that I know our primary care geriatric uh, providers are doing a lot of work um, with what are things we can keep in the nursing homes and not have them come to our ED. So that is ongoing work we have to do. Um, but I think we've you know we've talked a lot with home care about how we work together um, around a lot of this work too. Um, One of the things we've been talking about is um, uh, medication reconciliation. How can home care help us? Um, And we've had some piloting in our our community group practice in Nashua around that. Um, Our major challenge is keeping everybody educated about EDH and how to navigate that. (laughs) Um, But uh, uh, I haven't heard a a recent update from them about if that's been successful, too. So we have lots of opportunities, lots of opportunities. Some communities are actually uh, doing what's called paramedicine. So they have paramedics who are actually, um, in between their 911 calls, out making home visits on those patients who are frequently coming back to them. So another way to think about, you know, we're a big area to do that in, uh, easier to do in the city. Um, but, you know, again, lots of people exploring different options. Any other last-minute questions? Well, thank you for having us. Thank you. Okay. oh hey. it's a nice